This is the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Claire Barnes, one of the hosts of the podcast, and I'm very excited to welcome and introduce our guest today, Mindy Aloff. Mindy Aloff's writings on cultural topics have appeared in The New Yorker and The New York Times. She is the editor of the anthology Dance in America and the author of Hippo in a Tutu, Dancing in Disney Animation. Aloff is the author of Why Dance Matters from Yale University Press, a passionate and moving tribute to the captivating power of dance, not just as an art form, but as a language that transcends barriers. I'm very excited to speak further with you today about Why Dance Matters. Welcome, Mindy, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Claire. It's lovely to be here. I wanted to start with your personal fascination with dance. Much of the book fuses personal commentary with cultural commentary. It often reads as a narrative. Can you tell us about your personal fascination with dance? Did it develop over time or was there an event that sparked your interest? From the time I was a small child, my parents believed that a full education was um, included dance. That is a full general education. And so I was uh, encouraged to watch it on television. I was encouraged to take children's creative dance classes. And I, I mentioned one in the book um, with Ursula Molita, who was an emigre from uh, uh, Nazi Europe, who was a really remarkable teacher. Uh, Stuart Hodes, the, the great Martha Graham dancer, also studied with Ursula Molita, as it happens. Um, and they and my folks took me to the theater all the time. They also insisted I go to the library and read about what I saw. So I, I was introduced to dance in a lot of different ways. And I think um, I was probably not unique at all. That was a generational in the 50s. Dancing was everywhere. It was uh, on television. People still danced. My folks, who were not professionals by any stretch, would go out dancing. They enjoyed it. Um, and I danced with um, fellow classmates at 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 sock hop parties. Mm -hmm. So it was it was still uh, something that the general public did. And um, there were also dances that were touch, called touch dances. They were where where uh, partners would dance together. Um, and that was important. Once the 60s came with a twist, then everybody became soloists. It was all what, I guess, what in child development would be called parallel play. But when I was growing up, there was still, you danced with partners. Hmm. So that's, that's a real uh, generational difference from now. Hmm. That's fascinating. Thanks so much um, for, for sharing some of your personal uh, memories with dance. And I'm wondering, you know, during the classical age of Hollywood cinema, stars such as Gene Kelly and Fred Astaire brought dance to the masses and popularized dance. Um, in our conversations leading up to this podcast, you've noted that Hollywood has seemed to have lost the skill to make musicals featuring dance, even if musical numbers are often present. Uh, why do you think American cinema today so often includes musical numbers but excludes more arranged dance pieces? 
Well, I, I think I, I may have given um, um, misrepresentation of, of what I thought because it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think Hollywood has lost the appetite to represent dancing in a clear and distinct way by people who do it very well. There is a wonderful uh, feature in BuzzFeed by a gentleman named Matthew Huff, H-U-F-F, who, God bless him, went through 100 films just in in the 20th 21st century alone uh, to study what the best dance moments were in those films. Um, the <laughs> number 100, the one on the, the lowest, comes from the film of Cats. The first film that he saw was um, a solo, also a solo, a male solo. The 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 cats film was a terrible film, he said, except for this number. He does not mention that the person who's doing the number, um, Stephen McRae, is a very wonderful principal dancer from the Royal Ballet who happens to have had an incredible tap background. And it's a tap number. And he is terrific in it. But there's no concern in Matthew Huff's, uh, uh, I'm astounded by his list. I think what he did is very important, but he never mentions choreographers. Mm -hmm. There is a loss of interest in choreography itself, in the design of dancing in space and time. Uh, The kinds of dancing that are represented in Hollywood also are not uh, clarifying in terms of physical movement. They are uh, dances that are hard to do and um, sometimes jaw-droppingly amazing, but it's not about making movement clear. It's about transmitting a feeling more or less of, of movement in dancing, how it feels to do. Um, and yet the dis- the discussion that I hear surrounding Hollywood movies now is all what's perfect. This is perfect. That's perfect. When in fact, nothing, <laughs> nothing that I see on the screen is perfect. And I don't want it to be perfect in the sense of geometrically perfect. The 20th century, the camera really wanted to represent both a body moving in space in dance and specific steps and movements that constituted a design that you could see as choreography. That's what Fred Astaire did in his solos, but particularly in his duets. That's what Gene Kelly did in all of his pictures. It's it's what um, Bill Robinson did with Shirley Temple. Uh, Bill Robinson and Shirley Temple, by the way, were the most popular dance couple in 1935 worldwide. 
um, that they were more popular than Astaire and Rogers. The, the the clarity of their dancing. If you watch just uh, just Robinson and and Temple going up and down a staircase, it is the clarity of the tapping sounds and the clarity of the movement. That is mesmerizing. That kind of clarity is no longer seems to me of interest in Hollywood pictures. There are other things of interest, other amazing dancers, amazing dance dances, but not that. I did take a look at that, the list, the BuzzFeed list that you um, are, are mentioning. And it's so interesting because so many of the, the dances that I had um, pictured um, in cinema are choreographed. And so many of the moments that are on this BuzzFeed list almost seem to capture the feeling, as you had mentioned, of spontaneous dance moments in our life, um, of unchoreographed dance, uh, you know. And and so that's that's really interesting. And I, I do think you put that really perfectly. Um, and, you know, maybe in this unraveling of of the traditional forms of dance, we can turn to ballet. Um, in Why Dance Matters, you write extensively about George Balanchine's work, specifically his production of The Nutcracker, you know, one of the most famous stage productions of ballet performed in the U.S. Um, and you had mentioned um, that there's this movement towards ungendering dance. Do you um, think that ballet is going to survive that? How is ballet going to evolve um, in in an, both the unraveling of of choreography and 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 the ungendering of dance? That's <laughs> that's the big question about ballet, isn't it? Looking down a time tunnel and coming up with a trend. It used to be called Kremlinizing. <laughs> In, in journalism, where you, you try to figure out what's going to happen next year or next week. I'm not sure if ballet is going to survive. There will always be people who want to see the Sleeping Beauty, who want to see Balanchine, who want to see Ashton. But whether those repertories will survive as museum pieces or as living repertory that speaks to new generations, I don't know. That's what I mean by survive. Uh, uh, dancing where the sleeping beauty matters to you, to the 16 year old sitting in the audience watching a character who's supposed to be celebrating her 16th birthday, where where it's a me an immediate connection. I don't know. Um, it, it is, conceivable that men could dance ballerina parts. And if that's the case, there are already um, schools. Uh, there was an article about Juilliard recently where the, um, Alicia Graf Mack, who was the amazing dancer uh, at both the Dance Theater of Harlem and the Alvin Ailey Company, um, and is now the head of the dance department at Juilliard, spoke about how uh, the classes there are no longer divided into men's classes and women's classes. They are divided into Allegro, which is um, classes that are fast and jumping, I presume, that used to be associated with male technique, uh, 
and Point, that is the Point Shoe. Uh, there is a company in existence, at least one, maybe more, that specialize in point shoes for men. And this is not um, exclusively for dancers, say, in the Trocadero company, where it's amusing to see men on point, um, or can be amusing, because some of them are actually better dancers than the, than the ballerinas that I've seen elsewhere. But anyway, um, the... The, the question of genres and what's appropriate for men and what's appropriate for women, or indeed whether the distinction of men and women means any sense in a culture that is trying to be fully inclusive with um, uh, uh, trans, uh, trans dancers. There was an amazing film from Europe called Girl, G-I-R-L, about um, a, um, tra a transgender uh, dancer who, a man who uh, wanted to dance as a woman um, in a ballet company. That was really a remarkable and, and a remarkable film and, and, and touching also, very moving. Um, suppose the entire corps de ballet is made of individuals who I I I don't even know how to how to go on to describe it. It there there might not be meaning is what is what I guess I'm saying that seeing a girl celebrate her 16th birthday might not have meaning now. There are a lot of people who are who are counter or fighting that idea. Um, uh, the um, J.K. Rowling is in a lot of hot water for uh, speaking up on behalf of women, women's issues, women's identity. I I I I don't know where these arguments are going to end, but they are going to drastically, deeply affect classical ballet and um i just hope that somehow people sitting in the audience whatever their identities will be able to connect with the identities that were created a century before them or even two or three in very different cultural circumstances because if we can connect with the past that is not like us, it makes the mind larger. It makes options larger. It makes imagination larger. It's fascinating to hear that that Juilliard is is moving towards a more um, expansive, um, inclusive, or, or just inclusive, inclusive like, yeah. yeah, inclusive way of of structuring their courses. And it seems as if the relationship between dance and photography and videography has also captured um, many of the traditionally gendered forms of dance and has allowed us to really immortalize dance through other art forms. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role that 
photography, dance photography specifically plays in your writing about dance, how it impacts your understanding of history, of looking back into history, and um, if you would like any significant relationships that dancers and photographers have had through its history. Oh, still photography has been crucial. And I can give you an example right off the bat. Um, there, in 2016, there was a little book published called by Nancy LaSalle, L-A-S-S-A-L-L-E, called Balanchine Teaching. And it was uh, still photographs that she took of a seminar he gave, I believe in 1961, to other teachers around the country about uh, how his principles of how to teach. In the course of the uh, bouquet of photographs that she took is one of Balanchine and Air jumping high off the ground, his back held beautifully, his um that is just caught pinioned in air now he was in his late 50s that gives a tremendous amount of evidence of of uh how fit he was how he was able to demonstrate and also of the incredible joy of movement that he had so there's one still photograph um there are there are essentially two kinds of still photography and dance. One is um, studio shots where the photographer controls and creates the lighting and the pose. The other um, is photography that's made up of um, pictures of taken in what is called mid motion. The um, both of them have their geniuses in in the still photography. There are amazing photographs by Barbara Morgan of modern dancers, particularly Martha Graham, but also Merce Cunningham, uh, Jose Limon, and and many others. In uh, also George Platt lines a photographer with a an incredible technique. I know that incredible is not a useful word, but still an incredible technique is of in lighting. And uh, he took he took photographs of Balanchine's work in the 1930s and Balanchine apparently came in and did the poses, um, uh, arranged the dancers in their poses. Now, Lines is also famous for being as transgressive as you could possibly get, for um, being interested in highly erotic photography, in homoerotic photography. And there is an entire uh, group of photographs he did of Balanchine's Orpheus that has uh, the dancers who are, are nude. And he also has the clothed version. It's um, but when you look at the photographs with the poses arranged by Balanchine and the lighting arranged by lines, you see mood and you see emotion, even though nobody is moving. That's 
that's really a, an a amazing achievement, I think, and will forever be an achievement of George Platt lines. On the other side, uh, photography in mid-motion, you have Martha Swope, who had a genius for photographing moments in dance the way the choreographer intended them to be seen by the audience. Absolute genius for it. You, you look at any, um, any photograph she made, for example, of Balanchine, and uh, with the dancers moving, and you say, oh, I've seen that. I saw, the, I saw that moment in the theater. I saw it. That's astounding achievement to, to do uh, in photography. And there are other wonderful photographers. She's, she's not unique. But I, she is. Um, I, I think of her quite a lot, and and how fast her eye is, and how much she had to know in order to be able. Because when you're photographing, you have to be ahead of the movement. You have to know where the dancers are going uh, bef before you you um, activate the camera, so that you can get there at the exact movement when they arrive. <laughs> Mm -hmm. the, uh, she was a former student of the School of American Ballet, of course. She was a dancer herself. Um, now, cinematography is, is very different. Um, of course, you have to know where the, you have to know the ballets in and out. Many people who photograph the ball ballets um, uh, did not know what they were photographing. They just pointed because the ballets were brand new and they wouldn't have known uh, where the dancers were about to go. So some of them uh, are useful. Some of those um, films from early in the 20th century, particularly films made by new news people who went in. There is one film, one swatch of film, apparently, of Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. And that was made by a team, by a, a news cinematographer of an outdoor performance very late, I think around 1928. Uh, Diaghilev didn't want any of the ballets to be filmed. He thought that that would ruin uh, the initiative of an audience to come to see them in the theater. In fact, what turns out is that the more people see bits of film of ballet, that is what encourages that's marketing it encourages people to come to the theater but who knew that for a hundred years um the um the dance in america series of the 1970s and also great performances that was another they were both under the um public broadcasting system uh produced something close to treasure treasures of the, the performances and the ballets um, that they filmed done under very different circumstances. Of course, great performances, the cameras were brought into the theater and live performance was filmed. In Dance in America, there was an, a whole setup um, uh, made specially for 
that program and retakes could be done. Uh, things could be readjusted. Choreography could be changed to accommodate the camera. The um, Also, they're filming for, for television itself. Twyla Tharp had a whole program making TV dance requires an understanding of a triangular space that the camera sees that we do not see in the theater itself. So that the movement has to be accommodated to what the camera is able to present, able to see even. Um, all of that is very complicated. And the whole idea that you have to look ahead you have to be ahead of the dance, applies in filming also. I think that's so fascinating. And so much of dance and what dance photographers are capturing are moments of touch. And in the first chapter of Why Dance Matters, you declare that we're in a hapophobic age, um, a period characterized by fear of touch. Can you speak to the impact of the pandemic on dance that you've seen? Oh, well... The problem is you you can't see anything. <laughs> that was the effect. Um, people couldn't couldn't come to dancing as a social activity, uh, especially if you're either in the audience or watching a a film of it because the the filmmakers are are part of it. Um, and all of that was lost with the pandemic. What people, ended up doing were filming themselves on their phones as far as I can tell and I I don't think it's a um, coincidence that dancing on TikTok became very important during the pandemic especially solo dancing on TikTok now there are, there are lots of ways to dance on uh, TikTok but uh, people filming themselves the identity of the self. Um, it was like, it was as if everyone was in um, um, some kind of, of solo prison. And that is terrible for dance, terrible for any, for theater, for any kind of social um, uh, effort, cultural effort. So um, the problem is that the films that came out of the pandemic are not, when you look at them now, interesting as films. They're interesting as, um, as, as cultural documents, as psychological documents, um, but they're they're not something that uh, they're not um, they're not documents that one wants to go back to over and over the way a lot of people enjoy Gene Kelly and will look at Singing in the Rain 10, 20 times, 30 times. To give that kind of pleasure and to give beauty requires so much so many resources, so much money, <laughs> uh, so much um, 
ambition, so much willingness to work through the night. That um, that's the pandemic quashed a lot of that. I th I think it 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 was really a a very sad chapter. Um, the pandemic and maybe what people learned is to enjoy to enjoy the making of dancing when they're able to get together without a pandemic and to really treasure the moments they have together. That would be the real, the real lesson to come out of it. It seems to me mm -hmm. not being a dancer. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to talk, to talk about TikTok dance um, and even, even in, you know, TikTok dance, dances and and TikTok dancers which has become almost a category now people do use props when they can't involve another body um there are props and costumes that are involved in dance especially during a period um where we were unable to to gather together because of the pandemic and you know so many so many um props can be incorporated into dance. It can be ribbons, swords, fans, wings. Um, do you have a favorite uh, dance prop <laughs> in your in your time as a, a, a dance writer? And um, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about this, your favorite dance prop's form and function in relation to the dance? In the Bournonville Ballet Napoli, at the end of the ballet, it's an evening length ballet and it's a comic it ultimately a, a ballet with a happy ending there are a series of dances to a tarantella they are all uh, or largely dances for couples and at one point the couple one couple is connected by a long red scarf that connects them as they dance and then one of the dancers puts the scarf around the torso the body body of the dancer i love that prop uh that seems to me wonderful a larger version of it of course are all the ribbons in in maypoles and there are many dances uh for maypoles I'm guessing that maypole dances have something to do with weaving, with um, agrarian uh, societies that ra who raise sheep, because it has to do with texture and fibers. Frederick Ashton elaborated on that kind of connection, connecting people through things that were made from fibers in several of his ballets and they're quite it's quite beautiful the way he, the way he worked with that he made them uh geometric configurations he uh deeply emotional um in um, um his ballet a month in the country his work with ribbons he himself uh i believe also uh, lived in a uh, had a wonderful rural estate so he had a real appreciation of of farm life and animals um he did a ballet on Beatrix Potter's animals I am 
so fascinated by the ways in which dancers and choreographers and musicians are inspired by the natural environment. And oftentimes human dance mimics the natural environment. And I'm wondering if you can can speak to dance as a revolution or a protest in the light of climate crisis. Have dancers used um, dance in this way um, to shed light on environmental degradation, to shed light on the climate crisis? Or is that something that we haven't really seen? Oh, no, we have seen it. Uh, the way they use it is by having no nature on stage. Uh, an index is the are various productions of the ballet Giselle. Giselle is a ballet that is almost inconceivable without nature, um, in in the sense of ro romantic poetry. Wildness. Um, recently, Akram Khan did a version of his version of Giselle where there is no greenery at all. It's all a wall and stone. And I, I think that is very representative of feelings about what's happening to nature now. I would be quite mournful to think that the ballet Giselle would lose the original connection of the human figures to the natural world that um, are so important to it, were so important to it in the 19th century when it was made and throughout much of the 20th century. But it is clear that dancers have taken a very long look at ideas regarding um, the, the, the decline of the environment, and indeed the, the possible um, disappearance of the aspects of the environment that make life habitable. And they're putting that on the stage. Um, so Akram Khan's is just an outstanding example. Yeah, that that's so fascinating. Thanks for um, bringing, bringing that up. And as we approach the, the end of the podcast, um, in you know our past conversations, you've mentioned that dance is considered a low cultural cultural priority in the U.S. Um, but as many of us know, there was a recent very tragic mass shooting at the Monterey Dance Studio at the Star Ballroom Ballroom Dance Studio in California, and there were letters written by the victims' families, um, and talking about why dance matters. And I'm wondering if you can talk further about that um, and your kind of reiterate some of their thoughts on why dance does actually matter in the United States. Well, um, what, I, what I was referring to is a letter that is going around the internet by um, a scholar whose parents, that is a, a very important Asian American um, dance studio. Uh, and, she, and her parents um, liked to dance in that studio. As it happened, her father might have actually been there that night, but as good luck had it, he was taken elsewhere. So he, he, 
was not in danger. But the um, what she pointed out about that studio is that it brought together the Asian American community to do dances that were associated with modernity, with um, a global coming together to to uh, um, that that they were not sequestered by their heritage, that they participated in something that the whole world could do. This is not the way she phrased it, but this is the, the aspect of it, that it was this not only safe and secure, but a tremendously pleasurable place to be because they didn't have to be worried about who they were, only what they did. I, I found that letter extremely moving. Uh, and also I asked some friends who were, a, a friend, excuse me, who is a ballroom dancer here in New York about the letter and she and the studio. And she said uh, that in fact, uh, there are teachers in that studio who are from uh, Slavic countries where ballroom dancing is still very popular. Um, and and has a lot of competition, competitions that people do. Um, and she said it's a very well-known studio in the ballroom dance community for that reason. I One other thing, if I could add, dancing in Asia, which in in the in in the United States, we aren't quite as aware of it as uh, dancing in Europe. But dancing in Asia is very important and important to individual countries. Um, all different kinds of dancing. There was a film in 2014, maybe you saw it, a, a remarkable documentary by... Um, an American named Josh Oppenheimer called The Act of Killing. Have you seen that film? Mm -hmm. No, I've not it, seen it. It was, it, the executive producers on it were Errol Morris, perhaps you know him from, I think the Thin Gray Line, is that his film? And Werner Herzog. Mm -hmm. Josh Oppenheimer wanted to make a film about the several million people who were murdered in 1961, when there was a coup d'etat in Indonesia. And in order to murder that many people, um, it, the, the government went well beyond the military. They went, they went to just regular teenagers, teenagers who liked to garret people during... <laughs> during RPM record while playing RPM recordings of the Supremes and other really uh, wonderful, remarkable singing groups. Uh, that was not covered widely here, but it was also uh, sponsored. Apparently all of that was sponsored by uh, aspects of the United States government. I, I can't even begin to go, it's all in this, this documentary, The Act of Killing. 
Well, the people who did the killing, the murders, are now prominently placed in government themselves. And so the victims would not speak to Josh Oppenheimer because they were afraid that um, of they were afraid that they would be harmed by the by by the very people who had victimized them. So Oppenheimer had this brilliant idea that instead of going to the victims to find out about all of that mass murder, he would go to the murderers. And he did. He went to interview some of the most prominent ones. And what he said to them was, I will give you the resources and you can make a theatrical version of how you did it. And each one made a version that included dancing. One of them made an entire ballet that took place in a large ship that was shaped like a fish. And out of the fish came beautiful girls. I don't know, women, excuse me. I don't know what they were supposed to represent. Maybe the souls of the people who died. But the um, given the opportunity to stage the actions that they took and of which they are proud to have taken, the murderers all use dance. What does that tell us? I don't know. It's way beyond TikTok. It's there. There is um, there is something about it uh, that links dance to the deepest and most profound initiatives of the human being for good and for evil. But it, it it's linked. Does this is this of interest? I really. This is an amazing documentary. It was. Uh, shown for a while in New York. I think it was even recommend. It was nominated for an Oscar. This called the Act of Killing. Yeah, thanks so much for for bringing that up. I I think that it's it's quite related to um, our conversation about um, dance and violence and trauma and something deep about <laughs> about the human condition. And I think that it would be great if you know in in the a description of this podcast, we can link some of these great films and um, especially the the viral letter that you were talking about so that our listeners can can go and read it. And as we um, kind of wrap up the podcast, is there anything else that you would like our listeners to know about the book, Why Dance Matters? Oh, chapters are short. <laughs> and the book is a wonderful trim size. It is, um, you can put it into a briefcase or into a purse or into a small tote bag. Um, and it's beautifully designed, I think, with uh, red, white, and blue, which are uh, colors that relate both to the United States and to France. The uh, cover has figures who have hopped out of <laughs> a couple canvases by Henri Matisse uh, called The Dance, where he has a circle dance represented. And um, I'm just very pleased and, and humbled um, 
to have the book published by Yale and delighted that you would invite me to um, speak on this podcast. Well, thank you so much. It was so great talking to you today. And thanks so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us about the history of dance, why and why dance matters and should matter to all. Why Dance Matters, part of the Why X Matters series at Yale University Press, is now available wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.